Let's pray. Father, uh, we just pause to thank you for your goodness to us, and we ask for uh, today, yours to hear, and God, that you would speak through me by your spirit, uh, from your word. We love you. Thank you for your gracious treatment of us in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, I think I might have got that scripture reading wrong in my email this week, so if it is, that's that, that one's on me. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 6 primarily. We'll start with the end of chapter 5. Um, and I'm worried about getting done on time. But when I mentioned that, uh, Andrew said, don't worry, the Chiefs don't play till 2. <laughs> so, thank you, Andrew. <laughs> J. Vernon McGee says... This passage is known by many as likely the hardest passage in the Bible. J. Vernon McGee also says, The only hope for our country is preaching the whole of the Bible. I think he's right. And I hear you all saying the same thing. So here we go. We're going to get into a really tough passage today. In the book of Hebrews, Uh, the last time I preached this passage, it was in a small church in the Northland, and um, they didn't invite me back. (laughs) But also, uh, the only time it's ever happened when I've been preaching, a guy raised his hand in the middle of the sermon, and I'm a teacher by trade, I was like, yeah. And he was like, so if it doesn't mean this and this and this, what does it mean? (laughs) So bear with me. We don't get to that answer maybe until the end. We'll try and get there. 5, verse 11 is where where we'll begin. We'll read the whole passage, verse 11 there, and chapter 5 through chapter 6, verse 8. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. That references back to Melchizedek. Verse 12, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God, of instructions about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it brings forth vegetation, useful For those whose sake it also is tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless, close to being cursed, and ends up being burned. 
Woo. Here we go. Verse 11. Um, actually, 5, 11 through chapter 6, all of it is so very connected that we can't disconnect the end of chapter 5 with uh, chapter 6 and come out on the other end with a proper understanding. It can't be done. I don't think it can be done. That's what I was telling Tim Carper this morning. I don't know if I can do this all today, but I don't feel like you can do it separated. Beginning in 511, what we see is that hymn that refers to Melchizedek for concerning him we have much to say. Evidently, the original readers had become mentally and spiritually dull or sluggish. That's what it tells us. Since you have become dull of hearing. Another uh, another translation is sluggish. Uh, sluggish in their hearing. The Greek adjective is nothros. They were not slow learners, per se. They weren't slow learners. That's not the idea. But they had begun to grow lazy. They weren't interested. They were spiritually calloused. Uh, I had two students who were in my youth group when Kelly and I were in Dallas, uh, one Chase and Shane. And they came to our youth group, but they had their own church. And they started going through Hebrews at their church. And they got to chapter 7 about Melchizedek. And they came to youth group that week and said, what? Uh, like, we, we have no idea what's going on here with Melchizedek. Is there some guy that had no origin? And is there some guy who had no end? And how is he a pretty... They, they, what in the world? Mind blown. They have no idea where to go with that. And I think it's because, exactly what the author says here, these are the things that come with maturity. Like if you're growing in your faith and you're following the Lord for years, like these are things maybe you can understand. But he says, concerning him, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain because you've become dull of hearing. You're not going to get it. You're not going to get it. I think that's what verse 11 is telling us. These believers couldn't handle this higher level stuff. Stuff that was harder to understand. They were too lazy and sluggish in their hearing. And in their understanding. Warren Wearsby notes, and as I read this, I was convicted. One of the first symptoms of spiritual regression or backsliding is a dullness toward the Bible. Sunday school class is dull. The preaching is dull. Anything spiritual is dull. The problem usually is not with the Sunday school teacher or the pastor, but with the believer. There have been moments in my walk when I've said, oh, that sermon was, that sermon over back in Dallas was a little bit dull. I didn't get much out of it. Guess who? I'm guessing me. I think that's where our author is starting there in verse 11. J. Vernon McGee said, They have become dull of hearing. They have become dull of hearing. This was not the case with them originally. They have become this. It's not where they were. So we have what we have here is 5.11 through 6.8 really. We have the third warning passage in the Hebrews. The first two warnings in Hebrews were against drifting, Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, and against disbelief, Hebrews 3. 
All the warning passages in Hebrews involve actions in relation to God's word. That's crazy. You might think, well, it should be about God himself. It should be about Jesus himself. It should be about this other. You should need to listen to the apostles. That's not what the warnings are necessarily about. They're specifically about their actions in relationship to God's word. Have they become dull of hearing? I think that's what we're seeing here. Interesting what happens here in verse 11. The author says that they're too dull to understand about Melchizedek, right? And then he kind of goes on a diatribe about this problem for 10, 12 verses. Actually, we would even finish chapter 6. But then in chapter 7, he goes right on to teach some of the depths of the Melchizedek and priesthood. That's what he does. He says, but there's this problem. You're dull of hearing. But guess what? We're going to continue forward. We're going to go on to this. I believe you can move toward this and understand. He just continues with it. He doesn't end it. He continues with it. It's kind of like, uh, you know, maybe when I go downstairs and teach uh, children's church, and many of you guys have done Sunday school children's church, and you've got maybe a group of third graders, and you say, by now you should be able to sit and listen for 20 minutes or whatever, and you kind of know that they're not going to, and then you're going to sit and listen for 20 minutes. You go on with it. That's what our author seems to do here. Goes on with it. This is expected. This is where you should be going. Verses 12 and 13 continue. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. For he's an infant. Babies in Christ need milk. Infants in Christ need milk. There are three passages in the New Testament about milk. I could not help but note the similarities in these three passages. If you turn to these three passages, you're going to find these similarities. Obviously, you'll, you could pick out some things that are different. Definitely. Here are the similarities. The time factor, Hebrews says, by this time, I would expect that. So, and so does 1 Corinthians. Talked about it, it talks about a time factor. And in 1 Peter, it seems to be an understood time factor. Over time, we expect maturity. That milk is needed. Solid food is not able to be taken in. They're mentioned that they're called infants. They taste. Maturity is required or being built up is required. There's a foundation that's talked about. There's a The person is talked about as a field in both passages in 1 Corinthians and Hebrews. Their works are going to be tested, and then you have thorns, thistles being burned up here, and then in 1 Corinthians you have hay and stubble and wood being burned up. That looks pretty similar to me. John MacArthur and many others who teach this passage and say that this is about non-believers, they say that 1 Corinthians is about believers, 1 Peter is about believers, no doubt in their mind. And Hebrews chapter 5 and 6 are about non-believers. I can't make that fit in my brain that there's this much similarity and that this could be about non-believers. We'll continue with that. We'll get back to that in just a second as the text does. 
Finishing verse 13 here, the word of righteousness. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. This is the depths of God's word, which allow for one to grow and become more righteous. Obviously, his word is righteous. And if we're going to grow to righteousness, we have to be taking in the depths of his word and grow in our righteousness. No doubt about it. It causes their righteous living and personal holiness as they take that in. Righteousness through Christ is imputed at point of salvation. But that does not negate the fact that we are to go on in our sanctification and move toward holiness and move toward maturity. They are not experiencing this growth. The, these believers, I think, I would say, that Paul, uh, that Paul, <laughs> whoever the author is, is talking to, um, they're not experiencing this growth. And he's saying this is what should be happening, but they're not experiencing that. And it's probably because they're not mining the depths of God's revelation. They're not digging in. They don't care for his word. And they're not, they're dull of hearing it. If you're dull of hearing it, it's going to be really hard to apply it. If you don't even want to hear it. Verse 14 to finish chapter 5. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. This section uh, kind of 11 through 14, give us four marks of spiritual maturity. Uh, excuse me, four marks of spiritual immaturity. I guess you could flip them and make them maturity. But four marks of spiritual immaturity. Dullness toward the word. Inability to teach the word. A diet of only elementary truths in the word. And a lack of discernment in applying the word. Four marks of spiritual spiritual immaturity. If you're going to grow, they've got to get rid of those four things. While we are here, I have to say, how's your practice? Um, I was a tennis player. I I played a lot of sports, but uh, the sport that I played in college was tennis. Um, So my analogy is going to be a tennis analogy today. How's your practice? Uh, If you've ever played tennis or and, you know, anything, but I, I, my comparison is comparison is tennis. You ever play tennis? Certain movements that you have to get down. If you don't have this movement down for your forehand, if your forehand looks like this or your forehand looks like this, you're in trouble. If you practice it the wrong way, practice makes perfect. No, practice makes permanent. Practice makes permanent. So, with the tennis analogy. I practiced and practiced and practiced, and my dad is here today, and he would probably say that there's paint on the side of our house that was, you know, taken off because of my practice. Bang, bang, bang. Not on the garage door, right? Practice makes permanent. If you continue and practice in the right ways, not only does practice make permanent, um, practice trains that specific movement. Uh, if the practice is wrong, the ending is horrendous. But if practice is right, it not only becomes habitual, it then becomes character. I could have been characterized by the players I played against as the guy who could do this really well all the time. And other parts of my game, they would say he was the guy who couldn't do that <laughs> all the time. But the parts that I practiced really well, the right way, 
It became who I was to them. It was my character to them. He's the one with a really good serve. I didn't have a good forehand. I didn't have a great backhand. I had a great serve. He's the one that has a great serve. Prepare for that. Practice becomes permanent. If they're practicing incorrectly, if they're not practicing at all, that's a, that's a big problem. And then as we finish that uh, section of verse uh, chapter 5, how are your senses? Verse 14 says, But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. This is the same word, senses, that would be used for the five senses. Um, now, you might have to reveal a little bit about yourself here that you don't want to. Anybody ever seen the movie Sixth Sense? The Sixth Sense, okay. If you're judging me, I'm so sorry. Um, okay. So this kid has a sixth sense. Oh, his senses, I don't know, he can see dead people. Uh, it's a weird one, right? Like he's everywhere. He sees, okay, so that's the movie, right? That's, that's not where I'm getting here. What's the sixth sense of the believer? How's your sixth sixth sense? I like to say my ages. How's your sixth sense? Because of practice, their senses are trained to discern good and evil. We have a sixth sense. If we're believing and we are maturing, we have a sixth sense. We can discern good and evil. We should be good at it. Same word, senses, used for the five senses. So we have a sixth. How's your practice? Are we getting close to that point where we can discern good and evil? Moving on, chapter 6, verse 1. Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings, uh, teaching about Christ, let us press on to maturity. This verb translated, let us press on. Pharametha is in the passive voice. We could render it better, in my opinion. Let us be carried on. Christ working in a person to move them toward maturity. Is that what you say to non-believers? Let us press on. Spiritual maturity does not come merely by striving or by self-effort, but by cooperating with God to do His will. While depending on His strength and direction, it comes as we follow the Holy Spirit who leads and empowers us. Let us press on, and it's not just about us. He's carrying us on. He's the one who strengthens us. And we do have to uh, we do have to submit and go after that along with him. Our mindset, our heart set, that's where I want to go. And he carries us on. The other keys in this verse are pretty simple. They must move on from elementary teachings. We are given three pairs by the author, beginning there in the end of verse 1 and continuing in verse 2. So we're to go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. That's our first pair. And then of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, second pair. And the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Third pair. First pair points Godward. Uh, If I can find it again. Not laying a foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. This is our relationship with God. That's how it it began. 
This is, these are the elementary things. That's how it all began. The second is kind of pointing toward the present of instructions about washings and the laying on of hands. Okay, laying on of hands. Well, maybe I get to it. Yeah, I get to that in the next section here. Um, the third, the third section is talking about the future, uh, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Right. The prayer and laying on of hands was common as a sign of blessing, of healing, in the choice of the seven from Christ, laying on of hands, in the bestowal of the Holy Spirit, there was laying on of hands, in separation for a special task, in ordination. Those were normal things. They would lay on hands for in those situations. So those are kind of already understood. Those are the basics. These things have happened. There are some comparative things that happen within Judaism. So these Jews who might be falling back into Judaism, they should have a bit of an understanding about these elementary things already. These are possibly, uh, these possibly pointed issues with those who are trying to dissuade them from following Jesus. Possibly these are pointing back to, hey, they're trying to get you to go back to just the physical, just the things that you can do and no spirit and no God in this and no, maybe they're trying to get you to go back. Maybe that's what this is pointing at, a return to dead works. Continuing in verse three, short and sweet, and this we will do if God permits. The writer again acknowledged dependence on God for spiritual growth. We can continue to grow as he enables us grow. Okay, here we are, uh, four through eight. Um, we're well over halfway there with a number of verses, but here we go. We're, we're in the issue text. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. Okay, we're going to stop there. We'll continue in a minute. Um, so this heavily debated—excuse me—this heavily debated passage. Uh, we've kind of got five options. There are other options out there, obviously, but there are five kind of key options that most people adhere to. One of these. Who are these people that are being talked about? Are they believers who lose their salvation? Is this passage hypothetical? That it actually couldn't happen? It's just a hypothetical that the author adds in and says, what if this could happen? No, it couldn't happen. Is it those who fall away and they are believers who then commit apostasy? They're still saved, though as through fire, they've, they're like too far gone. Is that what's going on here? Uh, the fourth option there, profess believers who really are not. So these are non-believers. John MacArthur and others would take that position. And then the fifth option I've got there is backslidden believers who can't have a second, I know that's not a word, salvation-esque repentance. I made it up, right? I don't know. Um, Guess which one I'm taking. Yeah, the one with the made-up word. Um, Here we go. So those are kind of the options. Uh, As we read 4 through 6, we read 4 through 6, this can, uh, verse 4. For in the case of those who have been enlightened, tasted of the heavenly gift, been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, 
This can only be non-believers if there is a total change of topic. We've been talking about in Hebrews in the recent chapter, chapter and a half, a believer's rest, the great high priest that they have, the throne of grace and mercy. So if it's non-believers, so it's a complete change of topic. He's talking about going on to maturity. And then he says, oh yeah, and if there's any non-believers among you, they fall away, they, they're, they're not believers. Uh, maybe, uh, I guess. Um, but it has to be a total change of topic. He says there in, in our verses that they have, having been enlightened, this is in the passive voice again. That means God did it to them. They have been enlightened by God. This isn't someone kind of hanging around a church and maybe seeing a little bit, oh, kind of looks pretty good in there. Oh, it sounds like some people are having some things happen in their life. This is God enlightening them. I don't think that's a non-believer. Having been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, again, the passive voice, God has made them a partaker of the Holy Spirit. Ugh, I don't think that's a non-believer. They've tasted. It tells us that they tasted of the heavenly gift. It says, uh, it continues, it tells us that they've tasted also again. Elsewhere, the same Greek word for tasted refers to a complete appropriation. Jesus Christ tasted death for everyone in Hebrews chapter 2. Did Jesus swoon on the cross? Maybe Muslims would tell us he did. Jesus didn't come kind of close to death. Jesus tasted death for everyone. He completely appropriated it. And the same word is used here, for in my opinion, it has to be believers. They tasted of the heavenly gift. They've tasted the good word of God. This has to be believers. Christians become partakers. That same word is used um, uh, in Hebrews 3.14 and Hebrews 1.9. They become partakers of the Holy Spirit through spirit baptism. They're fully in. Um, Also in this passage, uh, verse 4 again. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened. That once is hapax. It's translated once in our Bibles, most of our Bibles probably. I think better translated once for all because that's what it means. They have once for all been enlightened. It's not a once upon a time, something kind of happened over a period of time. No, it's a once for all happening. And it occurs consistently in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 7, verse 26, verse 27. And it's talking about Jesus once for all paying our sin debt. Jesus once for all sitting in the... Jesus once for all. These are effectual things that took place. And I think that's why another reason this has to be believers. Verse 5 continues, every true and every true Christian has tasted of the word of God and found it to be good to some extent. I believe that's true. The original readers have also tasted of the powers, the literal there is miracles, of the coming messianic age. They have observed the apostles perform miracles. Some of the apostles are still alive in this time. John MacArthur Stanley Toussaint and others believe this passage about non-believers. I can't see that. So we're going to go to the 14 reasons that this passage can't be about unbelievers. 
Um, yeah, so they barely fit on our, this slide. I'm sorry, my slides at home were wide and these are here. So I know you probably can't read it, but uh, 1 Corinthians 2 and 1 Peter 2. Those passages are so similar to this one. To say those are about believers and this one is about unbelievers is really hard for me. The author uses we and us in the middle of this passage. He uses we, us, we. Uh, what? what? How in the world could this be about non-believers with the author using we and us? He tells them to press on. Every time it's used in the Bible, every time it's in reference to progressive sanctification, going on in your salvation, growing. They don't, that's not being used. God's not telling believers, uh, excuse me, unbelievers, press on, press on. I don't think so. The book of Hebrews consistently uses brethren, holy ones. We've talked about that one before. Uh, number five, guess what infants are? They're family members. <laughs> infants are not pre-family members who don't believe in Jesus yet. That's not what infants are. Number six, only believers are spoken of as maturing or needing maturing in the Bible. Unbelievers need to believe. They don't need to mature yet until they believe. Uh, seventh, the Greek verbs in verses four and five were passive and middle. We, we mentioned that. Eight, the tasted in Hebrews is fully partaking. We can go to nine. Partaking in Hebrews. Uh, that Greek term means to actively participate. How could that be non-believers actively participating with the Holy Spirit? The tenth, the same is true in the whole of the New Testament, not just in Hebrews, actively participating. Eleven, what non-believer would ever be expected to understand Jesus' relationship to the Melchizedek and priesthood? Verse 11, concerning him, we have much to say. It's hard to explain. You've become dull of hearing. You should be able to understand this. What non-believer can understand that? Jesus' relationship to the Melchizedek and priesthood? I don't think so. Twelfth, the aorist tense. That's a point in time. This took place. We just talked about those things. And then taken together with chapter 10, verse 32, uh, that idea, chapter 10, verse 32 reads, But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, I think if you take those together, there's a point in time something happened in their lives. I think it's salvation, obviously. They became enlightened. God enlightened them. They endured suffering. That hapax that we just mentioned. And then 14, because the length of time they have been believers, the author assumes they should be teachers. I don't think if we had a non-believer come in and become a part of Open Door for six months, eight months, a year, year and a half, just hang out here, nice enough, didn't want to kick him out. I don't think after a year and a half, Mark and the elder board would go to him and say, you should be a teacher. They would go to them and say, you need to believe. You need to believe in the true Christ. You need to believe he's the son of God. He died for you. You need to believe. They would not say, you should be a teacher. So for those reasons, and we'll move past that. I know that's a lot. And there's probably only, there might be no one here that thinks this is talking about non-believers. But that's a huge deal in this passage. So that's why I spent so much time there. I'm sorry. 
if you didn't, if you don't think this is talking about non-believers, yeah, if you don't think this is talking about believers, wonderful. Um, Here we go. We're going to continue. Back to our slide of options here. Um, I'm going to go ahead and cross out professed believers who really are not. That doesn't mean you have to cross it out in your mind. I would love for you to. (laughs) But you don't have to. Um, Moving on in verse 6. Now the really hard part. So these people who have tasted the good word of God, tasted of the heavenly gift, and then verse 6, and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. The writer also wrote about three other impossible things. So we have to figure out what's impossible here. The other things he wrote about that are impossible. He said that it is, the same term, it is impossible for God to lie. Yeah, that is impossible. 100%. 1,000%. He also says in Hebrews 10, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Facts. And he said in uh, 11.6, it's in, and for someone to please God without faith, it's impossible to please God without faith. You have to believe. You have to believe. You have to have faith. These are all, including our passage, impossible. This isn't an overstatement. It could be possible sometimes. Or stereo, you know, maybe it's a little possible. No, this is impossible. Something impossible is the focus of our author. So what is impossible? Going back to our four options that we have left. Is it impossible for someone to get salvation back once they've lost it? Is that what he is referring to? Is it impossible for this hypothetical story to happen? A believer falling away, being renewed again to repentance. Is it impossible for some believers who apostatize to ever repent and follow the Lord again? A group of people who are too far gone, impossible for them to repent. Or is it impossible for backslidden believers to have a renewed repentance again? Here we go. Those who believe you can lose your salvation rarely, if ever, teach that you can't believe again. That's not, that's not, those who teach that, they don't say it would be impossible for you to believe again. They turn to this passage and they say, see, you can lose your salvation. Uh, Quiet about the other part. Because we believe you can get it back. Pretty much nobody teaches that. Numerous Bible passages teach us that that it is God who saves and not us. So if it is God who saves, how can it be us who unsaves? And us who saves again? And then us who unsaves and us who saves again? That's not how it works. We can't be plucked from God's hand. He is sovereign. At open door, we as a church would not accept of you purporting lost salvation, as far as I know, as far as I've seen. We wouldn't support that. Uh, we're running out of options, so we we got to cross out another option here. So we're running out of options, y'all. we got three left. <clears throat> 
So, um, if this is a hypothetical, it is truly interrupting the flow. The flow of this idea is about maturity. 5, 11 through 14. Maturity. You need maturity, not milk. You need to mature. And then as you continue after our passage, guess what it talks about? Maturing, growing. We're convinced of better things about you. And Jesus is within the, within the veil with the hope, the anchor that is our hope. Like, maturity makes sense. A, um, a hypothetical uh, doesn't seem to fit the story at all. And it doesn't fit with verses 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8 come right in and say, this isn't a hypothetical. Like, this is a reality. The ground that drinks rain falls on it. Vegetation, useful, receives a blessing. The ground that doesn't, close to being cursed, ends up being burned. No, it's saying this is a reality, not a hypothetical. Also, this view arose, I think, somewhat because of the added words in the English text. Do you know what added words you have there that aren't there in the Greek that they add to try and help us? And maybe they do help in some circumstances. The added words are in the case of. So my uh, NASB in verse 4 reads, for in the case of. That sounds like it could be a hypothetical case. That's not there. There are no Greek words. That's not part of what's going on in the Greek. It's not there. No, it just says, actually verse 4 starts with, impossible for one's who have been enlightened, who have tasted, and it goes on from there. So I think that 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 kind of affects uh, the vision. The first time I taught this passage, I taught it was um, a hypothetical. I thought it was a hypothetical. Uh, Ten years ago, I really thought it was a hypothetical. I taught it that way, and I think this is an acceptable understanding of the passage. I just don't think it fits the text anymore. This would be the only teaching like this in the Bible for someone who falls away. Oh, yeah, this is moving on to the next one. Oh, yeah, so did we cross out? Okay, cross it out in yellow because it's acceptable, totally acceptable. Orthodox fits within open door, you know, our thoughts here. Uh, do notice I have red and yellow up there. I don't know if that makes any sense. Okay, um, so I'm going to cross it out in yellow. Eh, maybe yield, look at it again, consider it. Maybe that's where you end up. Now, the next option, it's impossible for a believer who apostatizes, says, I don't love God anymore, now I actually hate, or, you know, leaves the faith in some way. Is it impossible for them to come back? This would be, in my opinion, the only teaching like this in the Bible. And I know there are going to be some people here who say, no, I know of some other ones. Let me, let me clarify why I think that. For someone who falls away, they can't come back. Is this grace? Is this the new covenant? Do we not fail daily, sometimes in heinous ways, and then come back? I know you have a story about someone in your life or yourself who you feel like was just gone from the faith for a time period. I have an aunt who I would say was gone for the faith for a long time period and came back. We see discipline in a believer's life. Even death mentioned in 1 Corinthians 11. Discipline and even death, yes. This is why many of you were weak and sick. And a number of you have fallen asleep. Discipline. This is discipline. Not relegating believers to life without the possibility of repentance. I don't think we see that. 
The Greek word for fall away here in verse 6 is parapesontas, to fall aside, to slip aside, to deviate, to wander, to error. Does our great high priest only sympathize with our weakness to a certain extent? Is his throne of grace closed for a certain subsection of fallen away believers? Have you met one of them? Did you tell them as much? I've met some that I would think maybe they are. Boy, they have really turned their back on God. Oh, they're probably in that group. Are you kidding me? Boy, if this, if this is the understanding, which the Greek prophet Calvary, that is a genius, I called him two weeks ago, emailed him, talked to him about it. He said this is his take on it. It's definitely within orthodoxy. Definitely could be the option. Um, I don't see it. I don't see it outside of this text in the Bible that there's a subsection of people who can't return to the Lord. That it's not just about discipline. It's like, no, you just can't return. So crossing that one out in yellow, I think those are acceptable, but not preferable um, for me. you got to study the text for yourself and decide where you are. Option four is something that I think I haven't seen anywhere else, and it's what I see in the text. And I'm not a Greek scholar. So there, here we go. Fallen away. Para... Uh, para Excuse me. Parapipto. Side falling. Not conscious conscious or deceitful faithless action. It's to fall down inadvertently. It is not the Greek word apostasia or histamia to stand away from, from believing to non-belief. It's not parabino to willfully transgress. It is none of these harsh terms. It is to fall aside. It is to err. It's to turn aside. No doubt about it. What is impossible if someone turns aside? It is impossible, in my opinion, what's going on here is it is impossible to renew them again. Or more literally, these words are back to back in the Greek. To a new renew into repentance. So I think it's some sort of Second repentance, like, well, what if they leave and they go to Judaism and they embarrass all of us who are believers and they just leave the faith and they're gone and they do it their way after they had believed in Jesus and he was their sacrifice and they 100% bought in and then they're gone. Can we renew anew? Can we have a second repentance? Can we have some different way for them to be paid for again? Because what they're doing here is... Wrong. We need a second repentance. They need to come back to the before the to tell us all the reasons they were wrong, and they need to ask Christ back into their heart again. I think that's what's going on here. A renewed, a new faith. <clears throat> and here in verse six, this a new, renewed faith is qualitative. The Greek term is saying this is a qualitatively new. Repentance. And uh, when I thought about qualitatively new, I said, I need a thesaurus because I understand it, but not really. 
And in the English thesaurus, the similar ideas would be something that is absolutely new, altogether new, completely different, completely new, entirely different, entirely new, essentially new, fundamentally new. Is that what happens when someone turns away from God and says, I don't really believe right now, or I don't believe for a time, and then they come back? Do they get a qualitatively new salvation? Do they get a qualitatively new second repentance? There are different uh, subsections of Christianity that teach a second coming back, or a second commitment, or a new... I, I don't think it's there. I don't think it's in the Bible. And I think that's what our author is telling us. Doesn't happen. That is impossible. There's no second repentance. There's no new, renewed repentance for this person who turns aside to Judaism and then maybe comes back, possibly comes back. Now we have to remember that repentance is a change of mind. That's what repentance is. Once you believe, once you have changed your mind about Jesus, before you didn't believe he was Lord. You didn't believe he was God. You didn't believe he had died on the cross for your sins. You change your mind about that and you believe you're in his family. Later, you'll doubt, for some of us, you'll have doubts. You'll even not believe in moments of challenge. You'll choose that wrong path. You'll err. You don't go in and out of God's family like that. Can you imagine a family like that? You're in, you're out, you're in, you're out, you're in, you're out. Every time you err, every time you fall aside, you're in, you're out. You're in, huh? Maybe some of us can imagine it because we've experienced it in our own homes. I'm sorry if that's true. I pray that the Lord's family, the open door family, is good to you and says you're in and that's it. The author continues, can Christ be re-crucified for this new renewed repentance? No. That would mean his first death was insufficient. That's in verse 6. Since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame, if that's what they're doing, going away and then they want to come back, can we like crucify Jesus again? Is that what they're doing with their actions? In some ways, yeah, like that's what they're doing. They're holding him to open shame. But no, he can't be re-crucified. It's not going to happen. That's not what they need. They don't need Christ to be re-crucified. He's paid in full their debt. So what instead? What do they need? So what instead? They need maturity. They need maturity. It fits the context perfectly. We will see that as we finish this chapter, just as we saw at the beginning of the chapter... They need maturity, not a re-crucified Christ. Let's finish verses 7 and 8. We're almost there. For God, excuse me, for ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. Very simply, you understand verse 7. It's easy, right? Where there's growth... Where there's fruit, there's maturity, and there's blessing for that. 
Beautiful. I mean, that makes sense with all of God's words. Very simple, right? And then then verse (laughs) 8. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being cursed. And it ends up being burned. Woo! If there is no good fruit there, agriculturally, and these people are an agricultural people, 97% of people across human history until 100 years ago were agricultural. That's what they did. 97 They all understood this. He uses an agricultural term. He says, this land, if this, this ground, if it doesn't yield anything good, it's worthless. It's worthless. At literally, the Greek means disapproved. Adokimos. It does not mean totally rejected. It doesn't mean that the ground is subject to be torn out of whatever it's in, on the earth, right? It's not that the ground is rejected, but it is failing to gain God's blessing. No doubt about it. It's disapproved. This is not good. This is not the way it should be. No. It does. <clears throat> it is in danger of being cursed, is what we're told. It's in danger of being cursed. But it is not cursed. That's, That's not, not what we're told. It's told that they're in danger of being cursed. Burned here, I don't think, means burning in hell. I know, as soon as we see burn, that's immediately what we think. As soon as we see fire in God's word, that's what we think about. No, this field will be saved, though as through fire. That is familiar from Jude. That's familiar in 1 Corinthians. Saved, though as through fire in 1 Corinthians. What gets burned? The wood, hay, and stubble. Here, what gets burned? Do you think that the earth, the dirt itself is being burned? No. That which is on it is being burned. The thorns and thistles. In ancient times as well as today, farmers often burn their fields to remove unwanted vegetation. It's a need. It has to happen. God would do the same. Unwanted vegetation? Let's remove it. Let's get rid of it. No more of that unwanted vegetation. Not to destroy the field itself. No farmer would destroy his own field. Some fields, once being burned, turn out to be much more productive in the future. Verse 14 of chapter 5. Verse 1 of chapter 6. Verse 3 of chapter 6. They all tell us to go on to maturity. And we're almost done here. Verses 9 and 10, they're not part of what I'm teaching today. But just recognize that after this section about burning and close to being cursed, what does our author tell us? But beloved, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. Things that accompany salvation. You're going to go on to maturity. We're convinced you'll move on. You'll hear me. and You'll move on into maturity. We're convinced the things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. This is a harsh passage. I'm speaking in a harsh way, as he said. And then 10, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work 
And the love you have shown toward his name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. Are those unbelievers? Those are believers. God's faithful. Now, some of you, I think the main pushback to this reading would be, yeah, but these verses are so harsh. How could it be about someone that just is turning aside and needs to come back and mature? How could it just be that? It could just be that because that's a horrible place to be. To be totally dull of hearing, not willing to listen to God's word, slow, seeking your own, going your own way, away from the Lord. That's a horrible place to be. And that's what our writer tells us. I think that's what our author tells us. Finally, let's let's say someone comes back to open door after 20 years away from the Lord. They went back to their old ways. They followed their own rituals. They went back to their old sin. But they're back. And they walk in that door right there. What's our reaction? We haven't seen them in years, but we've seen their social media posts. They've lived in a heinous way, away from God for 20 years. What's our reaction? Do we ask for a second repentance? You need to really throw it down now. Now you got to come. Oh, well, you better get on your knees. You bet. Do we ask for a second repentance? Do we judge them and say you're too far gone? Or do we humbly look into their eyes and ask if they're ready to grow? Do you want to be nearer to God? We ask Him. Do you want to understand the depths of His Word and the depths of His grace? You made an error. You turned aside. Are you back? If you're here today and you have turned aside in your pursuit of Jesus, are you back? Are you ready to grow? If so, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. Things that accompany salvation. Go on to maturity in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I just ask that you would teach us, help us understand, Lord, as I studied It was hard. Help us each to be faithful in our study of the word. If this is a hard passage for us still, Lord, help us to go home and study it and try and understand what you've revealed because you've revealed in human language for us to understand. So, Lord, help us. We love you. Thank you for your perfect love and your grace toward us from your throne and for your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.